Now, I don't know what comes to mind for you when you hear that phrase, spiritual disciplines. I know sometimes it can be a little off-putting. Spiritual disciplines. I mean, the word discipline carries the idea of hard work, being regimented. It sounds uh, difficult and uninviting or even legalistic. It seems to emphasize our personal discipline and works. But aren't we saved by grace rather than by our works? I mean, what does the word discipline have to do with my relationship with Jesus? Which is a, it's a personal and organic relationship, isn't it? Well, if anything, we're more used to thinking of the word discipline in reference to physical training, aren't we? You know, it's December, the end of the year is fast approaching. It's the time of year when uh, people start to think about New Year's resolutions. I'm not sure if you've started to line them up. Um, but the stats do tell us that 42% of people uh, do New Year's resolutions, which is quite a good chunk of us. And do you know what the two most popular New Year's resolutions are? Yeah, that's it. Survey after survey, year after year, shows that overwhelmingly the two biggest areas are diet and exercise what we eat, and the physical activity that we do. Both of those things relate to physical health, don't they? Now, the fact that those are the two most common says something about what we value as a culture, doesn't it? I'm not sure if you went to Nigeria, that would be the same um, New Year's resolutions that people had. It's a good reflection on, oh, actually, this isn't a default thing. This actually says something about our culture. Uh, But it also shows that when it comes to physical health, it's kind of obvious to us that we need discipline, isn't it? That's, you don't even need to argue for it. That's just obvious. We need self-control. We need to work at changing our habits. It's not something that happens by accident, is it? Becoming healthy. It takes intentionality and practice. So that's why we make resolutions about it. So we're pretty accustomed to thinking about discipline and training when it comes to our physical health. But discipline and training can feel a bit out of place when it comes to our spiritual health. But have a look with me at how the Bible talks about our spiritual growth in 1 Timothy 4. If you've got a Bible or Bible app with you, it would be great to have 1 Timothy 4 open in front of you. 1 Timothy 4, but if not, I'll have it up on the slides as well so you can follow along. Have a look at this, 1 Timothy 4 verses 7 to 8. It says, Train yourself in godliness. For physical training is of some value, he's not denigrating it, But godliness is value for all things, holding promise both for the present life and the life to come. Now that phrase, train yourself in godliness, can also be translated, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And when the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Timothy, the Greek word that that he used, that we translate as training or discipline, is gymnadzo. As you can probably tell just by looking at it, what word does that relate to that we still use in English? Yeah, the, the gymnasium. You think of gymnastics, the gymnasium, which is, so it's talking, it's, talk, it's where we get our word gymnasium from. It's, so it's a context, word that was used in the context of physical exercise and training literally of hitting the gym. Train yourself. But Paul takes a word that refers to physical training and applies it to our spiritual growth. Hitting the gym not for gains, but for godliness. Exercising not for fitness, but for fruitfulness. Disciplining ourselves not for a slimmer figure. These ones don't, this one doesn't rhyme. But a transformed heart. 
(laughs) But it's a striking metaphor, isn't it? When you stop and think about it. It seems to imply that growing in our relationship with Jesus doesn't just happen passively, but is rather something that takes work and discipline and effort. That we might even have to, to give something else up to know him better. So for centuries... Because of passages like this, for centuries, Christians have used the phrase spiritual disciplines to refer to things like Bible reading and prayer, fasting, different practices that we can engage in to grow as Christians, as followers of Jesus, and to know Jesus better. Not things that are trying to legalistic and earn merit, but things that are helping us to know Jesus and enjoy him more and more each day. Now, when it comes to spiritual disciplines, there are two opposite errors that we can fall into, uh, two extremes that are both harmful. The first one is legalism. Now, legalism is seeing spiritual disciplines as a way to earn God's favor. Now, we, you, you might be familiar with the phrase uh, legalism, but I think it's helpful to distinguish between hard legalism and soft legalism. So hard legalism is where it's, it's kind of outright. It's straight up. So you might have churches that literally teach that you can actually earn God's favor and atone for sins by your own works. So maybe that's praying the rosary beads, saying Hail Marys, that kind of thing. And, and that teaching that you can, by doing these things, atone for your own sins and make God happier with you, that clearly contradicts the gospel which says that we are saved by God's free gift of grace through Jesus and not by anything we can do to earn it. So that's pretty easy to identify as legalism. We might call it, uh, it's quite clear. Perhaps what's more common in our church is, is what you might call soft legalism, which is more subtle. We might say, well, I know I'm made right with God because of Jesus, but maybe if I do my personal devotions on my quiet time more often, God might love me a bit more, or I might feel a bit better about the sins that I've committed. Or perhaps I feel that if I do my quiet time in the morning, then God is more likely to bless me later in the day. The things will go better for me. Or it could be just feeling guilty if you don't read the Bible and feeling that somehow God would be happier with you if you did. It could come in different forms, but however it's expressed, it's the idea that God's attitude towards me and my relationship with him is based on my behavior, my works, what I do, rather than what Jesus has done for me. So this is the first big error that we can fall into when it comes to spiritual disciplines, and it's a very dangerous one. The Bible is clear we're saved by faith in Jesus. Uh, We can see this clearly in Ephesians 2, 8-9, which says, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's a gift from God. He's the giver, we just receive. Not by works, so that no one can boast. So, in light of that, let's be clear, when we think about spiritual disciplines or habits of grace or rhythms of life, let's be clear God doesn't love us any less if we don't do our quiet time in the morning. And he doesn't love us one iota more if we do. Our standing before God is based purely on our relationship with Jesus and what he's done for us. And that's a beautiful truth to remind ourselves of. 
So that's the first danger when it comes to spiritual disciplines, legalism. But the second danger on the opposite extreme is what we might call license. This danger is that we act as if grace is a a license to live however we want. Well, since I'm forgiven, God's shown his grace to me, it doesn't matter how I live. Who Who cares what I do? We might say, since I'm saved by grace and not by how I live, how I live therefore doesn't matter. Because I'm not saved by my discipline or my godliness, it says that therefore my godliness doesn't matter. And sometimes this is almost out of a conscious fear of legalism. So license says, well, spiritual disciplines don't save me. Jesus saves me. Therefore, and that first bit is true, but this next bit is a false inference. Because spiritual disciplines don't save me and Jesus saves me, therefore spiritual disciplines are unnecessary or even dangerous for legalistic people. And this can take a few different forms. We, we might take the attitude of saying, well, reading the Bible's good if it's authentic and if I'm feeling in the mood for it. But if I do it out of duty, it'll become legalistic, dry and wooden. So instead, I'll only read the Bible when it's spontaneous and feels authentic, when I really feel like it, when it's coming from the heart. <laughs> yeah, once a month, Yeah. So it's not rejecting discipline, spiritual disciplines per se. It's saying, oh yeah, Bible reading and prayer are good, but it's taking the discipline out of spiritual disciplines, the concerted effort to make a habit of these practices out of fear that they'll become routine or legalistic, which in some ways is a good fear, isn't it? But perhaps misdirected. So instead of train yourself in godliness, as 1 Timothy 4 says, it becomes drift towards godliness if and when you feel like it. And of course, the problem is, if you're anything like me, I usually don't feel like it, once a month at best. I mean, if you're anything like me, when I first wake up in the morning, my instinct is not to meditate on God's Word and meet with Him in prayer. My instinct is to check Instagram and Facebook. The reality is, (laughs) no one drifts towards godliness. And why is that? Well, let's think about it together. The the pressures of the world and the temptations of the devil are always trying to push us downstream, away from God, aren't they? And there's no treading water in the Christian life. We're either consciously, by God's grace, swimming against the current of our culture and our world to grow in Christian maturity and intimacy with Jesus. We're either doing that, swimming against the current, or we're being swept away by it. And that's happening day by day. Now, if you're anything like me, you know what this drifting feels like. And maybe you're even experiencing and feeling it right now. And that's precisely why license is so dangerous. It lulls us into a false sense of apathy so that we just drift and course through the Christian life. And we have to realize the problem with license is that just like legalism, it fails to understand the gospel. Now, when we talk about the gospel, the word gospel is the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done. That's what the new, word new, that's what the new Testament means when it uses the word gospel. It's the message, the good news, about who Jesus is, his identity, and what he's done, his work. In its most simple form, you, you could articulate the gospel like this. 
that Jesus is Saviour and Lord. Jesus is Saviour and Lord. Now, there are many places that we can turn to in the Bible to find this, but since Christmas is coming up in just a few weeks, let's look at Luke chapter 2. When Jesus was born, have a listen to the angel's announcement. The angel said, Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah. The word Messiah simply means king, ruler, God's anointed king. He's the Messiah, the Lord. Now you can see in the angel's announcement, can't you, that they highlight these two key aspects of who Jesus is. Jesus is saviour. He saves us from our sins. And Jesus is Lord. He's ruler over the universe and, and therefore our lives as well. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And both legalism and license represent a failure to grasp the gospel in its fullness. Legalism fails to understand Jesus as saviour, that we're saved by what Jesus has done and not by what we do. We've already seen that, haven't we? But license, the opposite extreme, fails to understand Jesus as Lord, to understand that he's our loving ruler, and therefore how we live matters, not because it saves us, but because we want to please him. We want to honour him. We want, to, we want to please Jesus who has done so much for us and grow in intimacy with him. License says that because we're saved by grace and not by what we do, what we do doesn't matter. But if Jesus is our Lord, then what we do and how we live does matter, even though it's not what saves us. The gospel both gives us everything we need and demands from us everything we have. It all belongs to him now, doesn't it? For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We live for him now. Friends, if you are here this morning, and you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have put your trust in Christ, then you are saved. But it also means that your life belongs to Jesus now. And you live under his lordship. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So Jesus is both your saviour and your lord. And there's no greater freedom than living under his good, loving rule, is there? Now you can see this full gospel dynamic reflected, the full gospel dynamic of Jesus as both saviour and lord in many places in the Bible. But let's have a look at how it plays out in 1 Timothy 4. We've already looked at 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 to 8, haven't we? Which uh, calls us to train ourselves in godliness. But now have a look with me at verse 9, where we see the full gospel dynamic of both Jesus as both Saviour and Lord. 1 Timothy 4, verse 9 and 10 says, This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and for this we labour and strive. Even there we see some effort there, don't we? Uh, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, that we have put our hope in the living God who is saviour of all people and especially of those who believe. So here we see God as saviour, don't we? And who does he save? Those who believe. It's by faith that we're saved, not by works. It's a wonderful news. Does that mean that therefore we should just kick back and relax? Well, let's read on from verse 11 and find out. Verse 11 to 14 
command and teach these things, the gospel that we've just seen. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. Timothy was a young leader. But set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself, feel the strength of those words, to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through the prophecy when the body of elders lay their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's quite striking, isn't it? Set an example. Devote yourself. Don't neglect your gift. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them. Make progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Clearly, the Apostle Paul thinks that even though we're saved by grace, how we live still matters. In fact, because we're saved by grace, how we live matters. As we'll see soon, the gospel of God's grace actually empowers and motivates us to live in a way that pleases our Lord. So, because of this, grounded in the gospel, we strive to honour Jesus and grow close to him, even when it's not spontaneous or convenient, even when it doesn't feel authentic. Just like hitting the gym, even when we don't feel like it, we discipline ourselves because we see the goodness of it and its outcome. It requires work. It requires a fight. As Tim Keller rightly says, to learn and digest the Word of God requires a fight. We must fight our busy schedules, our distracted minds, our stubborn hearts, and the world's opinion and disdain. And notice, notice that word, to learn and digest the Word of God. It's easy to quickly open up a couple of verses and skim over them, say a quick prayer, drop it down and go on with my day. It's easy to do that. But to digest it, to meditate on it, that takes a fight. And it's only that that we will find enriching and life-giving, that will mold us and shape us more into the likeness of Jesus, that will help us to grow in intimacy with our Lord and Savior who has, who has bought us. That requires a fight. Okay, so we've seen that when it comes to spiritual disciplines, or habits of grace, as they're also called, and we'll unpack in, in the coming weeks why perhaps habits of grace might be a, a more helpful thing to call them, although, although both names work. We've seen that when it comes to spiritual disciplines or habits of grace, there are two opposite errors to avoid, legalism on the one hand and license on the other. And we've seen, haven't we, that the key to avoiding both is to grasp the gospel in its fullness, not a truncated or half-hearted gospel, but in its fullness with Jesus as Saviour and Lord. And that means that what we do doesn't save us. We're saved by grace. But we're still called to train ourselves in godliness as a response to grace. To discipline ourselves and train ourselves in Bible reading and prayer to know Jesus better. But here's the key question. What do you think is going to motivate us to do that? 
when we've got countless pressures and responsibilities pushing for our time and attention, we're overbooked, we're tired, or perhaps we're not any of those things. But in the morning, we just find that our brain doesn't want to go to the Bible, it wants to go to our phone. When, the, when we get up in the morning, what's going to stop us from just hitting snooze or rushing off to get started on the day? What's actually going to motivate us to do this in a way that's truly life-giving? Is it simply duty? Okay, I'm saved by grace, but I have to be disciplined, so better get to it. Is that it? You see, it's possible to see spiritual disciplines as a duty that God expects from us. Which means we're going to be motivated primarily by either duty or guilt. And these are not only weak motivations, but they're toxic for our relationship with God. And so it's vital that we understand that spiritual disciplines are not a duty that God expects from us. Not something that we do for God, but rather something has given to us. Something that he gives for us. You don't practice spiritual disciplines because you've got something to offer God, but because he's got something to offer you. His word, his wisdom, his promises. Spiritual disciplines are not giving to God, but receiving from him. Let me say that again because this is so key and I found this so helpful. Spiritual disciplines are not giving to God, but receiving from Him. And and that's precisely why, uh, for centuries, Christians have also called spiritual disciplines means of grace. They are means, instruments, things that God uses to shower His grace upon us and shape us to be more like Him. It's God hosting a banquet and inviting us to the table. God inviting us to feed on his word, to be nourished and strengthened. And that's why uh, taking means of grace, which has been used for centuries, to talk about not only private disciplines that we do, but also things like corporate gathering together with God's people. Um, Some people recently have started to call uh, spiritual disciplines or means of grace habits of grace. They're habits, they're life rhythms that we have to work at forming. The habits of grace, habits through which God blesses us. And over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at this topic together. But if you want to dig deeper, there's a wonderful and short, really easy to read book called Habits of Grace by David Mathis. And it is extremely practical and encouraging and gospel-centered. I highly recommend it, Habits of Grace. But friends, once we realize that Spiritual disciplines are not giving to God but receiving from Him. This enables us to be motivated to engage in spiritual disciplines, not motivated by guilt, but motivated instead by grace. Picture two people. Both of them set the alarm 15 minutes earlier than normal. Wake up, find a quiet spot in the house if such a place exists in your house. If you have young children, that might not be possible. But picture these two people. They both do the same thing. 15 minutes earlier, find a quiet spot and open their Bible. 
they both spent a few uh, moments talking to God in prayer, asking him to open their hearts to his word. And then they spent some time hearing from God by reading the Bible and thinking and praying and, and meditating about how it applies to their life for the day. Two people doing the exact same thing. Looking from the outside, you, you wouldn't tell it's any different. But one person is doing it motivated by guilt. They know they fall short of what God requires, don't we all? And so they feel that if they get up a bit early and have their quiet time, God will be pleased with them. Maybe God will bless them for the rest of the day. Maybe they'll just feel a bit better about themselves and that, that sin they committed that they really just feel so guilty about. They're doing spiritual disciplines. They're having their quiet time. But they're motivated by guilt. And it's toxic. Because when they're doing a good job, ah, oh, one week in a row, every day, great quiet time. They become proud. And they expect that God now owes them something. God, how could this happen at work? I've been so good with my devotions. How could you let that happen to me? Or when they start missing a few days, a dreaded guilt kicks in. Either way, pride or guilt, both of them alienate us from God, don't they? I either feel proud and self-sufficient like God owes me something, or I feel guilty and bad and oh, I don't want to talk to God. He's not happy with me. But the second person's motivation for doing the exact same thing is completely different. They know God already loves them more than they can imagine. They know that their standing before God is secured by what Jesus has done for them on the cross and not by what they do. And so their motivation for having quiet time is, is grounded not in guilt but in grace. They see time in the Bible as a means of grace, an instrument by which God speaks to them and feeds them. They want to be reminded afresh of the gospel in its fullness. They want to grow in maturity and have a deeper awareness of God's love for them, of his holiness, of his majesty, of his purity. They want to see things from his perspective, to have clear discernment about what pleases him as they head into the day. They want to have a better perspective to face the trials that may come. They want to receive these gifts from God. They long to know their Heavenly Father better. And so they come to God's Word in eager expectation to receive His grace. Two people doing the exact same thing. But the motivation makes all the difference, doesn't it? Guilt motivation or grace motivation. The one is toxic, the other is life-giving, grounded in the gospel of God's grace. So as we begin this three-week series in the Habits of Grace, my earnest prayer is that God would place in each one of us a strong desire to grow closer to Jesus through spiritual disciplines this summer. That we would see disciplines not as somehow opposed to grace, but rather grounded in grace. And that even now, God would be giving you a desire to come to the banquet, to put in place habits that are life-giving and help you grow in closer intimacy with our Lord Jesus and know him better. Now, you might be thinking, 
look, this sounds great. I'd love to have quiet times that are like that. (laughs) But in practice, my quiet times often feel dry and, and difficult. It doesn't feel like a banquet. What does it look like practically to have times of Bible reading and prayer and meditation that are, that are rich and life-giving? I mean, practically, concretely, help me out here. Well, and that's exactly the question that we're going to be looking at together over the next two Sundays. Getting really practical about how to engage in the spiritual disciplines in a way that's not a dry routine or a burden. Oh, I've got to do this extra thing. But something that nourishes us and feeds us. But for now, uh, let's pray that that even in this moment, God would begin to give us that desire to see his word in that way and to draw us closer to his son, Jesus. Let's pray together. Almighty Father, we thank you for the glorious riches that you have given us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the reminder of his goodness towards us even as Adam reminded us this morning that he has lived the life that we couldn't, died the death that we should have, and he's now seated at your right hand, ruling over the whole universe. Lord, we confess that we fail to live up to our own standards, never mind your standards. Lord, as we reflect on our own hearts, we know that they're corrupted by sin. And yet, Father, you've demonstrated your love so concretely and magnificently in the Lord Jesus to save us so that simply by leaning on him, trusting in him, relying on him, we can have relationship with you now and into eternity. Thank you for that glorious gospel. And Father, we pray that you would, that you would draw us closer to yourself, grow us up in that gospel more and more each day. Lord, we feel the pressures of life around us and of Satan tempting us, distracting us. Lord, we long to grow in intimacy with you. So please, Father, would you put that desire in us by your Holy Spirit. And we pray that over the coming weeks, Lord, there's no technique or strategy or silver bullet or lever that we can pull. There's only you. Only you can bring about change in our hearts. So please, Lord, do that, we pray. Lord, mold us and shape us. Give us habits and rhythms of life um, that are saturated in your grace and in your goodness. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.